welcome to Darkgate Horror Podcast, episode number 21. This episode will discuss the concept of the based-on-a-true-story trend in horror films that has recently come around again. True, there is personal horror that is much worse than any horror film could ever imagine, but it is a common trend in horror films to base a horror film on a true story. But just how does the true story compare with the film adaptation? In this episode, I'll discuss three very different horror films based on a purported true story, including the Amityville Horror, Wolf Creek, and Zodiac. I've already discussed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in episode one, which would also fall into this category. As usual, I'll be discussing all aspects of the reviewed films, so this is a spoiler alert. I apologize for my delay in getting this April episode out to you, but for the last two weeks I've had terrible laryngitis, so bear with me. I believe my voice should hold for the whole episode, but I did want to kind of warn you ahead of time. So let's move on to news. There's so much news out there right now, but I'm going to mention a few exciting movie announcements. Jared Padalecki from Supernatural, Cry Wolf, and the remake of House of Wax is going to start a reworking of Friday the 13th. It'll be filmed in Austin, Texas, and released on Friday, February 13th, 2009. We'll discuss this in months to come, as I am a huge Friday the 13th fan. Next, Jensen Ackles, the other Winchester brother from Supernatural, and Devour, is beginning shooting in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the remake of the 1981 slasher film My Bloody Valentine, this time in 3D. Ackles will play Tom, a handsome, principled man who returns to his home in Harmony, Montana, 10 years after 22 people were murdered on Valentine's night. Back in Montana, Tom finds he is still smitten with his first love, Sarah, played by Jamie King, and is now a murder suspect. Zane Smith wrote the screenplay, and production begins May 12th with a planned January 23, 2009 release. I think Ackles is a great actor, but come on. Number one, do we need this film remade? And two, why must it be in 3D? BloodyDisgusting.com is reporting that if you head over to MSN, but not if you're a Mac user like me, unfortunately. You can check out the final trailer for M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening. Being that it's his first R-rated effort, could this be the new Shyamalan? Arriving in theaters June 13th, the film follows a couple who go on the run from an apocalyptic crisis that presents a large-scale threat to humanity. NBC has given a 13-episode commitment to the horror scheme Fear Itself, which begins June 5, 2008. The anthology series comes from the creative mind behind the Emmy-winning Masters of Horror franchise, which has aired two seasons on Showtime, including Lionsgate and Industry Entertainment. Masters of Horror executive producers are all on board with the NBC project as well. NBC Entertainment Universal Media Studios co-chairman Ben Silverman said he's looking for new ways to offer scripted fare in the summer. He says... This is a different deal model that allows us to broadcast an increasingly popular form of storytelling and provides NBC with genre entertainment that appeals to younger audiences. Our goal is to produce more scripted programming in the summer for year-round programming, and everyone knows how well horror movies perform in summer. Some of the directors on board include John Landis from An American Werewolf in London, Darren Boosman from Saw 2, 3, and 4, Stuart Gordon from Reanimator, and Ernest Dickerson from NBC's Heroes. Another horror show on TV this summer is the CW reality show 13. 13, the working title, is a spine-tingling new eight-episode series combining the horror genre with the reality show format. The show's executive producers are Jay Beanstock from Survivor and The Apprentice, and Ghost House Pictures' Sam Raimi from the Spider-Man films and the Evil Dead films, 
and Robert Tappert, the Evil Dead films and the Grudge films, Ghost House Pictures' Joe Drake and Nathan Cahin will produce. This series is the first to take the horror movie into the reality world, says Don Ostroff, president of CW. The action takes contestants on a journey with challenges and games designed to frighten them along the way. Similar to horror films, the challengers will play into our deepest fears and anxieties and will reveal things the contestants never knew about themselves. 13 is produced by Magic Molehill Productions in association, association with J. Beanstalk Productions. Actually, we can just cut that whole part. <clears throat> I'm really excited about 13 because I am... I think it's great any time horror moves on to TV, even though I am certainly not a fan of reality, I'm going to try this show out. Incidentally, my friends were trying to convince me to put in a tape to audition for the show, but my life is just a little too crazy right now, even though it's probably going to be filming in L.A. Before we discuss our main topic, here's a brief review of The Exorcism of Emily Rose, a film that is based on a true story, but that I don't want to go into a lot of detail in the rest of the podcast. The plot is such. Rising young defense attorney Aaron Bruner is assigned to the case of Father Richard Moore, a Catholic priest charged with the murder of 19-year-old Emily Rose. Moore's defense is that he was performing an exorcism. As the case gets underway, the story comes out how Emily became possessed while at university and how the manifestations became increasingly more sinister. During the course of the trial, the prosecution wheels out many doctors to insist that Emily suffered from seizures and epilepsy, but Aaron proceeds to demolish their arguments. As the trial continues, Aaron, despite being an atheist, starts to come to believe in the dark forces that Moore says are surrounding them and are trying to influence the outcome of the trial. It is supposedly based on the true story of Annalise Michel of Würzburg, Germany, who was killed in 1976 during an exorcism. The two Catholic priests and Annalise's parents were convicted of manslaughter over failing to feed her and being neglect in seeking medical treatment during the course of the exorcism. A series of tape recordings made of the exorcism, which consisted of rituals sometimes twice daily for nearly a year, provided instrumental evidence in the court case. And during the trial, it was argued by experts that all of Annalise's suffering was due to grand mal seizures and temporal lobe epilepsy. On these matters, the exorcism of Emily Rose adheres to the basic tenets of Annalise's case. However, the rest of the story strays dramatically, until it really doesn't resemble the real story at all. The ending is sappy, contrived, and left me wondering whether an R rating would have helped the studio release a better film, without worrying about keeping to a PG-13 rating. The description of the plot was from moria.co.nz slash horror slash Emily Rose. The link will be in the show notes. My opinion can be summarized in one word, dull. Now, I'm a litigation paralegal. I have an obvious interest in law, and I like law and order, John Grisham-style type stuff. So this film should appeal to me. However, this film was so slow-moving that I actually fell asleep on my first try through it. Granted, I was expecting a film more on the lines of The Exorcist when it came to the actual possession and exorcism, but it just did not deliver, unfortunately. So let's now move on to our main topic. Amityville. There seems to be little doubt that one of the most famous American hauntings to ever be documented occurred in the quiet town of Amityville, New York, a peaceful enclave in Long Island's South Shore. There stands no other case in the latter part of the 20th century that so captured the imagination of the general public, and no other case that filled us with such fear. 
I'm going to go to great detail in my discussion of this film because it is highly influential and it's a well-known story to the mainstream audience. You cannot talk about the film without talking about the history behind the film. And that's the real story, well, so to say, of Amityville and the DeFeo murders. The horrific carnage that prefaced the story of the Amityville horror began one dark fall night in November 1974. The DeFeo family, Ronald Sr. and Louise, their two young sons, Mark and John, and two daughters, Dawn and Allison, were sleeping peacefully in their comfortable three-story Dutch colonial home in Amityville. The silence of the house was shattered when Ronald DeFeo, nicknamed Butch, murdered his parents and his siblings with a high-powered rifle. One by one, he killed each of them as they slept, beginning a tale of terror that had endured for three decades. The horror and the hoax. The tragedy in Amityville made grim local news, but few outside of New York ever heard about the house until some time later. The horrendous events that followed began on December 18, 1975, when a young couple named George and Kathy Lutz bought the house on Ocean Avenue for just $80,000. Just a week before Christmas, they moved into their dream house with Kathy's three children from a previous marriage. They would later claim that the dream house soon became a nightmare. Almost from the moment they moved into the house, the Lutz family would insist they noticed an unearthly presence in the place. They began to hear mysterious noises they could not account for. Locked windows and doors would inexplicably open and close as if by invisible hands. George Lutz, a sturdy former Marine, claimed to be plagued by the sound of a phantom brass band that would march back and forth through the house. When a Catholic priest entered the house after agreeing to exercise it, an eerie disembodied voice told them to get out. After the aborted exorcism, the events began to intensify. The thumping and scratching sounds grew worse. A devilish creature was seen outside the windows at night. George Lutz was seemingly possessed by an evil spirit, and green slime even oozed from the walls and ceiling. The family was further terrified by ghostly apparitions of hooded figures, clouds of flies that appeared out of nowhere, cold chills, personality changes, sickly odors, objects moving about on their own, the repeated disconnection of their telephone service and communication between the youngest Lutz child and a devilish pig she named Jody. Kathy Lutz reported that she was often beaten and scratched by unseen hands and that one night she was literally levitated up off the bed. The family managed to hold out for 28 days before they gathered up their possessions and fled from the house. According to their story, they left so quickly they didn't even take their furniture or many of their other possessions with them. The demonic spirits, they said, had driven them from their house. And then things started to get really scary. In February 1976, not long after the Lutz family left the house, local residents were stunned to see New York Channel 5's news team doing a live news feed from the house on Ocean Avenue. The news crew filmed a seance and a dramatic investigation of the place conducted by Ed and Lorraine Warren, two of America's most famous demonologists. For those not familiar with the Warrens, Lorraine claims to be a clairvoyant and a trance medium who is said to have the uncanny ability to contact the spirit world. On the other hand, her husband, Ed, purports to be an expert on hauntings and exorcism. From the 1950s through the 1980s, the Warrens, who were based in Connecticut, were recognized as authorities when it came to ghosts and demons. While they are still active until recent years, their methods have been replaced by more scientific standards of investigation. Regardless, in 1976, their stamp of approval on the events reported at Amityville caught the attention of a nation. George and Kathy Lutz teamed up with a writer named Jay Anson, and together they authored what would become a best-selling book called The Amityville Horror. 
The book would then go on to spawn a bad movie and a number of even worse sequels. And not surprisingly, the Warrens were hired by producer Dino De Laurentiis and the production company to serve as consultants about the supernatural occurrences played in the film. They also made the rounds of the talk show circuit, discussing the horrific events at Amityville. One of those was a paranormal investigator from New York named Dr. Stephen Kaplan. George Lutz had approached him on February 16, 1976, about conducting an investigation of the house on Ocean Avenue. As the story of the Amityville horror became an international sensation, Kaplan was at work collecting evidence and materials about the house and claims made by the Lutz family, Jay Anson, the Warrens, and the media. Although convinced of the validity of the paranormal and supernatural activity, Kaplan was not convinced of the truth behind the Amityville case. While it was possible that a haunting could have occurred at the house, especially in light of the violent events that had taken place there, there was something not quite right about the accounts of the Lutzes. After some initial investigation, Kaplan became sure that a hoax was being perpetrated on the public, and such a hoax could prove to be damaging for legitimate paranormal cases in the future. With that in mind, he became determined to show the entire story was a farce. In 1979, attorney William Weber confessed to his part in the hoax during a paranormal radio show hosted by author Joel Martin. Weber admitted that he and George Lutz had concocted the story of the haunting over a few bottles of wine. Weber's motive was to get a new trial for DeFeo using a devil-made-him-do-it defense. According to Weber, Lutz merely wanted to get out from a mortgage that he couldn't afford. His business was in trouble and he needed a scheme to bail him out. Weber later filed a $2 million lawsuit against the Lutzes, charging them with reneging on their book deal. Kaplan found ample proof outside of the glaring confession that the story was a hoax. He gained access to the house on many occasions and found the so-called Red Room, where the book claimed occult ceremonies took place, was nothing more than a small pipe well that gave access to them if they needed to be repaired. No demonic face had ever appeared in the bricks inside the fireplace, he also noted that the original front door of the house, blown off on its hinges in the book, was still intact and in place. In fact, the extensive damage to doors and windows that was recounted in the book never happened at all. All of the old hardware, hinges, locks, doorknobs, was still in place and there was absolutely no disturbance to the, to the paint or the varnish. Today, most researchers concede that the story was mostly, if not entirely, fabricated. To the general public, though, the truth remains much more of a shadowy thing, and some theorists believe that there are still things about the story that just do not add up. All of the weak utterances of truth in this story continue to be arranged to look at like something they are not. To this author, they are a perfect example of the entire case as a whole, a blending of fact and fiction in an attempt to terrify the American public. This article was from prairieghost.com slash Amityville which is one of my favorite websites. So how do the film adaptations compare? Well, in Manola Dargis's review for the New York Times from April 15, 2005, and a link is in the show notes, Manola says, Given the crushing dullness of the first Amityville horror, it seems baffling that it had any traction at all. James Brolin, sporting a head and face full of Charles Manson fuzz, and a wide-eyed Margot Kidder play a couple who snap up a palatial Long Island house for a song. Like the audience, the lovebirds already know their new digs are shrouded in murder and mystery, but what takes them an agonizingly long time to realize, despite all the miscellaneous creaking and the escalating weirdness, the house is possessed. 
the movie was the kind of thing beloved by bored teenagers and recreational drug users, two occasionally overlapping demographics, and was followed by a clutch of sequels that mostly went straight to video. The latest visit to Long Island's favorite haunted house was co-produced by Michael Bay, the director of such Jerry Bruckheimer-engineered blockbusters as Armageddon, and directed by Andrew Douglas. The writer this time is Scott Kosar, who also wrote Mr. Bay's equally serviceable remake of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and more interestingly, Brad Anderson's Machinist. Mr. Kosar builds on the story arc of the first Amityville, which shrouded a gruesome real-life multiple murder in a bunch of supernatural hooey and predictably pumps up the gory violence. Set in the 1970s, the new Amityville stars an effective Ryan Reynolds as George Lutz and Melissa George plays his wife. Despite the jittery reality agent and an ugly stain marring a large swath of ceiling downstairs, and oh yeah, the nasty revelation that the house being the site of a murderous family meltdown, the Dutch colonial home looks like the American dream to the young couple. They take the homeowner's plunge, thereupon triggering various unfortunate events, and in time, a serious case of buyer's remorse. Low-key creepy rather than outright scary, the new Amityville marks a modest improvement over the original, partly because, from acting to bloody effects, it is better executed, and partly because the filmmakers have downgraded the role of the priest, played in all his vain, popping glory by Rod Steiger, in the first film and a considerably more subdued Philip Baker Hall here. Oddly, with these improvements, the filmmakers have removed Amityville from the realm of kitsch, perhaps with unintended results. In 1974, when a Long Island man turned Amityville into a crime scene by killing his family, there was something so novel about this kind of tragedy that it could be spun into a pop cultural myth. Rotten Tomatoes gives the original 1979 version a 27%, and the 2005 remake comes in at 24%. And you may wonder why they continue to make movies based on this story. Well, it's a matter of making money. The 2005 remake at the box office made over $64 million, and in rentals it brought another almost $42 million. It's very easy to confuse people with the label of based on a true story. And in this case, everyone knows the story of Amityville. So these movies will continue to live on. Let's move on to Wolf Creek from 2005. The synopsis is that two British tourists, Liz Hunter and Christy Earle, meet with an Australian man, Ben Mitchell, at a party and decide to spend the rest of their holiday with him. The young trio plans to drive to Wolf Creek, a large crater formed by a 50-ton meteorite, and explore the area. Upon returning to their car after hiking down to the crater, the group discovers that the car won't start, and unable to discover the problem, they prepare themselves to sit out the night. The instance when the characters discover their watches have stopped and that they have inadvertently dozed off while at the crater, draws a parallel to a scene similar in the 1975 film Picnic at Hanging Rock, which also features John Jarrett in a small but important role. After dark, a crocodile Dundee-like character named Mick Taylor comes upon them and offers to tow them to his camp to repair the car. With no choice but to agree, the group allows Taylor to take them to his camp, a spot which is apparently an abandoned mining site. In the dark, it is not apparent how far they travel or in what direction. Taylor regales them with tall tales of his past, while making a show of fixing the car, claiming the problem to be the ignition coil. His manner unsettles Liz and Christy, although Ben is less impressed and dismisses the Bushman's tales as bravado. The tourists are offered water, which is laced with drugs that render them unconscious. Liz awakens to find herself tied up in a shed late the next afternoon. 
She manages to escape by cutting the plastic that tie her hands together as night falls and discovers Mick torturing Christy. She shoots Mick with one of his own guns but fails to kill him, although this is not apparent immediately. The women flee the camp, but hopelessly lost in the dark, they almost plunge over a cliff into a ravine. Realizing the killer is now behind them, the pair attempt to outwit him by pushing their vehicle off the cliff. After narrowly avoiding Taylor, who is now searching for them, the women return to the camp to steal another car. Liz leaves the hysterical Christy outside the gates, telling her to escape on foot if she does not return in a short time. Liz enters a garage and discovers Taylor's large stock of cars as well as an organized array of travelers' possessions, including video cameras. She watches the playback on one of them and is horrified to see Taylor rescuing other travelers stranded at Wolf Creek in almost identical circumstances to her own. This suggests Taylor is a serial predator who has snared many others with a similar ruse. She gets into a car and attempts to start it, but Taylor announces himself with a sinister chuckle and stabs her through the driver's seat with a huge knife. He then cuts off some of her fingers, severs her spinal cord, making what Mick calls a head on a stick. It tortures her to reveal the location of Christy. Mick mentions that this method of torture was used in the Vietnam War, hinting at Australia's involvement in that conflict and perhaps the origin of his insanity. Liz does not appear in the rest of the film, and her eventual fate can only be guessed. By dawn, Christy has reached a highway and is found by a passing motorist. He is subsequently shot dead from a considerable distance by Taylor, who earlier revealed he once shot water buffalo from a helicopter. Christy attempts to escape in the motorist's car, but the chase is short. Christy forces Taylor's car from the road, but Taylor proceeds to shoot out at one of her tires and causes her car to crash. Taylor then drives up and kills her as she drags herself from the wreckage. He stows her in his vehicle and sets fire to the other car. The action now cuts to Ben, whose fate until now was not revealed. He awakens to find himself nailed to a crossbeam in a mine shaft. Close by is a cage containing two savage dogs and two similarly crucified and partially eaten corpses. He manages to extract himself and enters the camp in early daylight. From this, it could be assumed that the scene is taking place at approximately the same time as Taylor is away from the camp chasing Christy, but the timeline of the film is never really clear. Ben escapes into the desert, eventually passing out beside a dirt road where he is rescued by two Swedish travelers and taken to safety. The final scene of the film reports in mockumentary style that the women's disappearances remain unsolved. Ben was accused of their murders, but acquitted. The film closes with an image of Taylor walking into the sunset. So let's talk about the true story. The true Wolf Creek story happened about 2,000 kilometers from Wolf Creek National Park, but not in Western Australia, but in the Northern Territory. On July 14, 2001, British tourist Peter Falconio, then 28, and Joanne Lees, who on October 26 finally launched her book, The Only True Story, traveled on the Stuart Highway from Alice Springs in the direction of Darwin. It was nighttime. Roughly halfway between Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, just outside Barrow Creek, a mechanic called Bradley John Murdoch managed to make them pull over and told them there were sparks coming out of the exhaust of their van. Peter went to the back of the van with Murdoch to have a look, and Joanne was asked to rev the engine. She later said she thought she heard a shot. Then Murdoch, holding a gun, came to her window. He bound her hands and dragged her into his four-wheel drive vehicle. Then he disappeared for a while. It is assumed that he dealt with Peter's body during that time, and that's when Joanne managed to escape. She hid in the bushes Murdoch was searching for her with his dog, and eventually he gave up. 
Joanne waited for hours, making sure he was really gone and not coming back. When she finally staggered onto the highway, two truck drivers stopped and helped her. Murdoch was caught in the largest Northern Territory police investigation ever. He had been in Alice Springs the same day as Joanne and Peter, and he had also visited the same fast food outlet. Whether he targeted them at random or followed them from Alice Springs is not known. He claims he wasn't even near Barrow Creek and had taken the Tanami Road instead, which is a rough bush track from Alice Springs to Western Australia, and it runs past Wolf Creek National Park. Many questions remain. No weapon or body was found. The motive is unclear, too. But speculations revolve around paranoia and aggression involved with his heavy amphetamine use. Murdoch is a self-confessed drifter, drug runner, and regularly transported large amounts of cannabis between Alice Springs and Broome in Western Australia. His lawyers couldn't explain how his DNA had ended up on the makeshift handcuffs that Joanne was tied up with if he'd been nowhere near her. After a two-month trial, he was found guilty in December 2005. The verdict by the jury was unanimous. Murdoch will serve at least 28 years of a life sentence. Murdoch's appeal was rejected in 2007. The author of the article followed the reports of the trial and admired Joanne Lee's stoicism. He believed it helped her to make an escape, but it often didn't help her before and during the trial. She remained silent, withdrawn, not revealing her emotions. No big magazine spreads and TV shows, just four days of testimony during the trial. Kind of unusual in our age of media hype and rampant disclosure. But five years after her ordeal, Joanne released her book, No Turning Back, in October 2006. And now, for the first time, she is talking to the media. Joanne Lees is an exceptionally strong person who deserves our compassion and admiration. He recommends the interview. If you want to know the true story, read the book. And that's it, the Wolf Creek true story. Or is it? Well, not quite. There are many parallels, enough for Murdoch's lawyer to prevent the movie from being released in the Northern Territory during the trial. But the true story we mentioned is not the only one that influenced the Wolf Creek movie. The character of Mick Taylor, the seemingly friendly and helpful Bush bloke, is modeled on Ivan Milat. Milat was a serial killer who picked up hitchhikers and took them into the woods where he tortured and killed them. These murders took place in the 1990s in New South Wales, not in the outback, and haven't taken place in other form in other times in other parts of the world as well. Milat, too, was caught and sentenced to life in prison. You should keep in mind that writer-director Greg McLean wrote the original story years ago as a conventional and purely fictional horror flick set in the Australian outback. He only became aware of the true cases afterwards and took ideas and cues from them and blended them into his story. The line, based on true events, surely helps marketing the film, but it is misleading. And this article is from outback-australia-travel-secrets.com. Link will be in the show notes. Wolf Creek is known as the Australian Texas Chainsaw Massacre for good reason. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 53%. Not bad for a horror film. Dennis Harvey from Variety Magazine says, It's scary cinema pushed to the brink of punishment. But there's no question that what it sets out to do, it does alarmingly well. Personally, I really enjoyed Wolf Creek and will give it a second viewing at some point. It had some extremely scary moments and some great tension. It was just beautiful to watch. It was a good film. I really enjoyed it. Let's move on to Zodiac from 2007. Let me start this with saying this film is not a horror film. Zodiac is the name of the notorious serial killer who haunted the San Francisco Bay Area of Northern California during the late 1960s, leaving several victims in his wake and taunting police with his letters and ciphers which he mailed to newspapers. The case remains one of San Francisco's most famous unsolved crimes. 
As with Jack the Ripper and other unsolved serial killer cases, the intrigue lives on, almost entirely because people are curious. Who doesn't enjoy a good mystery? There are several film adaptations of the story, including the low-rated 2005 film The Zodiac. In this episode, we are going to discuss the 2007 film only. Director David Fincher's film Zodiac is based on the 1986 true crime book by Robert Graysmith and features Graysmith himself as the lead character, back when he was a political cartoonist working for the San Francisco Chronicle and who began his own series of investigations into the identity of the killer. Kevin Cross states in his review in the LA Times that Zodiac is primarily a complex character study, despite the film's grim and gruesome subject matter. It's a role reversal of sorts for a director who normally emphasizes the brutal tension in his movies. The film runs nearly two hours, 40 minutes, and except for the very beginning, does not give us any horror, nor even good thrills. However, the film is very well shot, beautiful, and well cast, although it is quite tedious and dull in the second act. This film was originally to be released as an Oscar contender. The story behind the film may be of interest to listeners of this podcast, however. Mick LaSalle from the San Francisco Gate reviews this film as such. For all its dramatic flaws, Zodiac deserves praise for not choosing the easy route, the story of the unsolved murders that paralyzed the Bay Area in the 1960s and early 1970s. Zodiac doesn't sensationalize or glamorize real-life events. In fact, it barely fictionalizes or even dramatizes them. The film takes place mainly in the fluorescent workaday world of the journalists and cops who tried to crack the case. And its virtues, like its failings, are those of authenticity. It offers neither the illusion of a complete resolution nor, and this is the big problem, the structural organization that comes from a storyteller's knowing how it all ends, what it means, and what needs to be shown. For Bay Area viewers, this is also a local story, and director David Fincher is conscientious about getting those particulars right. Two brief shots of the ferry building show the old Embarcadero Freeway still intact, and the filmmakers apparently know exactly when and how the Transamerica Pyramid was constructed. Bay Area locations such as the original Joe's turn up in their 1970s splendor, and at least one actor, Mark Ruffalo, goes so far as to replicate the vocal mannerisms of a man known mainly by friends and family. I was in grammar school during the years depicted, but the old-time newspaper men shown in the San Francisco Chronicle newsroom seem right, with their white shirts, tough guy faces, and rolled-up sleeves. It's probably safe to say that the more you know the details of the Zodiac case, the more you'll appreciate the movie. It's adherence to the historical record, its period atmosphere. Yet in the end, these are the virtues of a documentary, and as drama, there's something strangely flat and unnerving about the picture. At times, Zodiac has a grim, smeary look to it, almost as if somebody took an oily rag and wiped it across the lens. And the story is equally murky and without focus. In recounting the failed investigation, the filmmakers never quite locate the pulse of the movie. Three actors take turns in the spotlight. As the film shifts its emphasis over the course of its 158-minute running time, Robert Downey Jr. plays Paul Avery the reporter who covered the story for San Francisco's greatest newspaper. Ruffalo plays David Toshi, the detective heading the investigation, and Jake Gyllenhaal is Robert Graysmith, the Chronicle cartoonist who became obsessed with the case and later wrote the book upon which the movie is based. If there's a running thread, it's in the movie's suggestion that each man becomes, in some way, burned out or driven mad by the pursuit. Actually, that approach could have provided an organizing principle for the narrative, except that the movie can only suggest it tepidly probably because it's not really true. Zodiac is best appreciated as a showcase for fine acting, especially that of Downey, as the witty, hard-drinking, drug-taking Avery. 
It's a portrait of a man in the grip of an addiction, someone funny and clever but full of pessimism and self-loathing, someone who seems to see through everything, including himself, and knows he's riding the elevator of life all the way to the basement. After 20 years of these colorful, detailed performances, it might be time to stop thinking of Downey as quirky original or as an eccentric favorite and start thinking of him as a significant American artist. Avery's flashy journalism puts him in conflict with Toshi, who's played by Ruffalo in a kind of method acting meets Columbo style. He's mumbly and indistinct, though he gets better as the film progresses, and his scenes with Gyllenhaal in the last third are some of the best in the picture. Gyllenhaal, by contrast, gives a clean, clear, and meticulously detailed performance, conveying in believability and illuminating ways the obsessive and detail-oriented nature of the character's mind. Zodiac never takes off, but it never collapses. At times, it can become frustrating. For example, about 30 minutes are spent pursuing a lead that goes nowhere. Why bother putting that in the film? At other times, it's easy to appreciate the opportunity to sit through a picture without being manipulated in the typical ways. Though something less than the sum of its parts, its separate streams its separate streams are at least mildly entertaining, and it's even better in those moments when the performance is cut through the murk with extra vividness. Too bad John Carroll Lynch couldn't have entered the story more fully. As the prime suspect, Arthur Lee Allen, he is truly scary, but to give him more of a role would have required making stuff up. That constraint, nonfiction's lack of access to the making stuff up option, is often the greatest weakness of true stories. This is from sfgate.com. The link will be in the show notes. There are many theories out there as to the identity of Zodiac, and many websites devoted to discussing the theories and suspects to no end. I guess there is little wonder why a man such as Greystone became so addicted and absorbed with solving the mystery. As far as box office, it grossed only $33 million at the U.S. box office, $51 million worldwide, bringing the total revenue to $84 million, with a modest $65 million budget. So, in summary, I just want to give you some of my thoughts as far as the genre of the based on a true story. We've discussed several different films that are entirely different in the story and the concept and the execution. However, they're all based on that quote-unquote, based on a true story concept. I am not alone in thinking that the reason horror films are stamped with the label that they're based on a true story is that it makes the story scarier to think that it's based on a real occurrence, that the characters lived or died going through what we see on screen. As I have said before, on some level, we watch horror to make the horror in our own lives seem insignificant or somehow easier to deal with. It makes the sounds in the woods while we are camping and the scratching at the windows of our houses seem creepier because we just don't know what's out there. Well, I think that the tag bearing based on a true story is absolutely misleading on occasion, such as the basis of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre's Ed Gein, a man who killed women so he could wear their skins rather than Leatherface, a chainsaw-yielding maniac. It makes you think twice when you meet some strange, creepy old man who stops to help me change a flat tire in my car. And what about the Blair Witch Project? I love that film, but the reason that the film became such a phenomenon was that the film was portrayed in the marketing campaign that the three student filmmakers disappeared during the filming and were never seen again. When the three actors started showing up at award shows, the hoax was discovered. However, the film became infamous, primarily due to word of mouth and the low-key, inexpensive, mostly internet marketing campaign that stated that the witch was real and the students really disappeared. Recently, I watched the Peter Weir film, 
Picnic at Hanging Rock. I mentioned it earlier in this podcast, and it's not really a horror film. It is about some Australian boarding school girls on a picnic in the year 1900 who disappeared and were never heard from again. The film is based on a book, which was toted as being based on a true story, although the author later denied such allegation. I could not help but think that this film, which was extremely well done, and stays with you a long time after the credits roll, was an inspiration for Blair Witch Project, and several other films. For those of us with overactive imagination, such as myself, these stories glue themselves to your subconscious and scare you in your daily life, and this is the core of the trend of these types of films. Clearly, the concept of the film as being based on a true story or inspired by a true story is not a new concept, and you find it way beyond the horror genre. But in my opinion, they will continue on indefinitely simply because people watch them. The song of the night is The Way You Are by 46 Bliss. Check out the website at 46bliss.com. Brought to you by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com. Put yourself in my place, put yourself, 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 put yourself in my place,
that's it for this episode. Many people have expressed to me that they wish I would release podcasts more often and longer in duration, and I just wanted to let you know that I would like to as well. However, they take a lot of time to prepare, record, edit, research, um, watch films if I need to. I have a plan to release one per calendar month, but I'm considering many episodes. When there's a time-sensitive information or a brief review of a book or film, let me know if you would like the concept of the mini episode. They would probably be 10-15 minutes, just an idea I'm playing around with. I attended the Fangoria Weekend of Horrors convention last weekend in Los Angeles, and a brief podcast on the contents of the convention is forthcoming in the next week. It was an exciting time. There were a lot of really great things happening at the convention that I'd like to share. The next monthly podcast for May will discuss horror television shows. I often skip discussing television horror, primarily because I have my Supernatural podcast, but there are currently some great horror shows on TV and with television networks streaming old shows on the internet, along with TV shows available on DVD and reruns on channels like TV Land and Nickelodeon, many old shows have been kept alive. Well, thanks for listening and take care. Thank you for listening to Darkgate Horror Podcast. You can send me an email at darkgatehorror at gmail.com and visit my website at darkgatehorror.blogspot.com. Thank you to Josh Woodward for the use of his song, I Want to Destroy Something Beautiful, which is the opening and closing music. His website is joshwoodward.com. Music played on this podcast is from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com.